Revelation chapter 2, beginning in number tw- verse number 12. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write. Now, Pergamos is, um, you know, a lot of these names of these churches, they, they actually have meaning to what was going on in the church. And in this particular church, the term Pergamos is two different words. Perg is the, the beginning of that word. And that's where we get um, the same, or per, where we get our word. Anything begins with per, pervert, perfect. And then the second part is gamos, or um, polygamy comes from that, monogamy, and it means marriage. And so perverted marriage or objectionable marriage is what that means. And so as I told you guys last week, we got into this, and I want to kind of really hone in on this because I think this is so key. Now, as you know, all seven of these churches were literal churches that Jesus wrote letters to, but they also represent the church age. So they cover 2,000 years of church age history. Some of these churches are still in existence today. Some of them that we're going to get to um, here in the next church, the Church of Thyatira, um, is is the Holy Roman Catholic Church that from about 600 to current days, from 600 to 1500, the Ro- Holy Roman Catholic Church dominated religion around the world, right? All through um, the entire world where, where, where Christianity was being practiced and so it wasn't like today in, in a lot of these kind of church ages that we go through where, you know, you could go here in Tooele and you could go to four or five different denominations and churches and different things. But there were seasons where some of these churches were it. That was what was going on through the church age in history. And so not only do we have seven literal churches in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey today, um, but we also have what's representative of the seven churches. So we can find in these seven letters and identify certain characteristics of current denominations and churches and movements, the Protestant movement. We'll see. We'll pick a little bit today on the Holy Roman Catholic Church and some of the things that went sideways because Jesus does and not because we're here to pick on anybody or any church. But next week when we get to the um, the Protestant Reformation age around the year 1500, then we'll be picking on the Protestants. So We'll, we'll make sure we offend everybody before it's over. And if you do have a, a Roman background, just understand that the things that we'll share today are history. And, and the history of the church has its black eyes. And, and the history of the church, you, you really can't defend it as a Christ follower. And so if you're talking to a non-believing friend or an atheist and they want to bring up church history as a, as a black eye, you, you don't try to defend it. It's really not, it does have its, its, its black moments. What you need to understand is that, remember last week in that church, and Jesus said that you, you, you have those that say they are Jews, but they're not. And this was a thing that was going on. Well, that's true throughout all of church history, is that we have those that, that do things in the name of Christ that have nothing to do with Christ himself. Do you guys see that? Can you guys think of an example without me giving you one? of maybe a church today, a people today, a person you know, a group today who does things in the name of Jesus that has nothing to do with the Jesus we know, right? And, and, and so th- this, is, this is true, that God has always had a remnant. You know, the Crusaders were, were Christians who wore crosses on their shields and, and they conquered during the, the years of the Crusades in, in, in Jesus' name. But, but they were murdering people if they didn't convert to their faith. What does that have to do with Jesus? Nothing to do with Jesus. And, and, and though that we get, and you and I as evangelical Christians, we get lumped into this boat that's Christianity, we, we have to understand that, that the true remnant of God's people were not involved in those things. And as a Christ follower, if you have relationship with Jesus, that, that's the remnant that, that's always been true. But the church itself has gone through some dark days and dark ages. And it's very difficult to, um, to defend. If, you know, it's impossible. It's not even worth trying. So as we get to this stage, what's happening now is we're going to, um, we went from the persecuted church um, in, in verses 8 through, through 11. And God has nothing, Jesus has nothing negative to say about them. The church was growing. The church was doing well. Everything was um, just nothing negative to say. And, and then when we get to verse 12 where we started today, we started to introduce it last week. But we're reaching this church that's um, Pergamos. And again, per is um, word that technically the word means objectionable and, and gamos means marriage. And that's exactly what this church was. It was an objectionable, objectionable marriage. And who was married? Do you guys remember? The church and, and paganism. 
And Constantine made Christianity in, in 313, the Edict of Toleration, that the church had gone through in this, in this stage of their persecution, um, verses 8 through 11, and the persecuted church. The church went through um, 300 years where, where 5 to 8 million Christians were martyred and killed under 10 consecutive Roman emperors. Nero was the emperor when Jesus died on a cross in Jerusalem. By the time Paul's ministry started and Paul was preaching, Paul preached the gospel to Caesar Nero, and it was Caesar Nero who had Paul put to death and Peter put to death. By the time John is writing the book of, of, of Revelation, Nero has gone, and a new emperor of Rome has taken place, Domitian. And Domitian is the one who tries to kill John and then exiles him to the island of Patmos. And from Nero to, to, through Domitian all the way to Constantine, there were ten consecutive Roman emperors, and every one of them in different levels persecuted the church, and the church went through 300 years of mass persecution, and the church thrived, and the church grew. And then Constantine took over, and for whatever reason, Constantine um, has this moment of, um, uh, of a conversion, and he claims to be, have become a Christian and to have met Christ. But everybody doubts his authenticity, and, and who are we to, to judge what is? But we do judge his fruit, right? We're not judging his heart, but we're judging his life and looking at Constantine and the things that he did, they don't really represent somebody who's been touched by Jesus Christ personally has made a real commitment to the Lord. But what Constantine saw was that there were so many Christians that weren't on either side of the wars and the fights in Rome. And he, he realized that if he, could, if he could get the Christians on his side, that he could become more powerful and he could recruit more soldiers. And so that's what he did. He, he, he became a Christian and he said he had this um, vision of a cross in the sky and and words written on it that you will be victorious. And that's when they began to use the crosses on the shields. And in Rome, they declared Christianity the known religion. But rather than um, have the pagans repent and become Christians, what he did was he just combined the two. And as you guys know, and you've probably heard this as, as Christians, as Christ followers, right? And you, maybe you have somebody who um, is on the other side of this, and you have a Christmas tree, and they say things like, why do you have that Tammuz tree in your house? Are you worshiping? You know, and Easter is actually Ishtar. It's a it's a pagan festival, and Christmas is 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 not is celebrating the the birth of Tammuz, and it happened in the winter, and and Jesus was actually born in the spring, and we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us when Jesus was born. But what it says is that the shepherds on the night that Jesus was born, that the shepherds were in the fields at night watching over their flocks. That didn't happen in the middle of the winter in Israel. There's no way in December would the shepherds be in the fields in the middle of the night watching over their flock. That was a springtime um, event with the, with the shepherds. And so Jesus was born in the spring. But we celebrated on December 25th. That's pagan. But, but again, we're not worshiping Tammuz and we're not worshiping Ishtar and we're not, you know, and so we, we today, we have liberty in that because Christmas is about Jesus for us. But we do need to understand that, that all those things have pagan roots in them. I think all of them have pagan roots and many of them have been kind of Christianized except for maybe one. Halloween, that's still the devil. We haven't Christianized that church. We try to Christianize it. We won't even call it Halloween in church. We say, oh, no, it's harvest night. <laughs> it's a harvest festival. And, and, and you know, we, we try to use every opportunity to share the gospel. But that, that's this, this place where we are right now in the scriptures where this happened and where these, these, the church married the world and these things became convoluted. And that's what Constantine did. Now, I want to tell you, and I said last week, the devil made a change in history here. 313 um, A.D., the Edict of Toleration, Constantine makes Christianity the official church. And what Satan does is he stops persecuting the church. There was no persecution after that of the Christian church. It would, it would again happen, or happening today all over the world. We have Christians dying more in the last 10 years than during the first 300 years of Christianity. <coughs> so it's happening, but... What Satan couldn't do by attacking the church from the outside, he did by joining the church. And, and it entered this compromise in the church, which completely weakened the church. And, and the reason is, is because, and again, this is so key to me right here. I think it's so important as we study the churches to understand this one thing. What, what changed in, in the church that weakens the church, and now you have these scathing letters that, that Jesus writes to these other churches, is there was no cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship was removed from the church. Look at your neighbor and say, no cost. 
Look at your other neighbor and say, it's free. Listen, the cost of discipleship is not free. And I want to be careful with that. I want to make sure that this church understands. You know, what, what, what happens with a no-cost discipleship is it, it does fill more seats in the church. The largest churches in America, they're no-cost discipleship churches. They're churches where you, you can, in some degree, marry you, the world to the church and keep some of your worldly things and do those things and be comfortable in the church. And the pastors won't talk about sin. And they won't talk about controversial issues. And, and, they, and they won't deal with anything that's, that's pol- political or anything that would split the, the, the audience in any way. And, and they won't teach the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. They won't teach through the entirety of God's Word. Huge sections that they just stay away from. Because it's, it's, it, it fills seats. And it is, it is popular. And this, um, it, again, the largest churches in America are these type of churches. And they're everywhere. They're, they've, they've sprung up everywhere. But it's dangerous. Now, um, hey, turn with me, really, if you will, really quick. It's important. Luke chapter 14. I want to share with you guys as we get into this the the, um, the cost of discipleship, and I want you to understand what it is as a Christ follower. You know, I heard a kid, I heard a guy say one time in church that he heard the sermon at the end. The pastor said, "If you want to become a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm going to lead you in a sinner's prayer, and I want you to ask Jesus into your heart, and you will become born again, and you will go to heaven." And he said, I said that prayer, and the next week I came back, and they said, well, now you have to do this, and you have to do that, and you have to follow it. And he said, I felt like it was a bait and switch. But, but listen, that's, that's not what's going on at all. It's not a bait and switch. It, it, it's the reality that, that yes, there, there's two different things going on. You have to have a starting point. You have to have a place, to, an opportunity to place your faith in Jesus. And nowhere and have we ever said that that's all you need to do. And that, do- that doctrine is super dangerous and destroying the church here in, in, this, in, in, the, in the church that we're studying. Be- because you can't, you know, some people ask Jesus in their heart at, at VBS in sixth grade. And they said the sinner's prayer. And then they've lived their life apart from God for the rest of their lives. And they have pastors or preachers or teachers who will tell them, oh, you're fine. You can live however you want. You said the sinner's prayer. Once saved, always saved. And it doesn't matter how you live your life as long as you... You, you've accepted and you believe in Jesus. And that's simply not true. We'll see, we'll see in the next churches where Jesus is going to say, I'll blot your name out of the book of life. But here, here in Luke chapter 14, in verse number 25, the title says, Leaving all to follow Christ. And it says, Now great multitudes went with him, and he returned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brother, and sister, yes, his own life, also, he cannot be my disciple. Want to talk about radical? Take that at face value. You have to hate your mom, your brother, your sister to become a disciple of Jesus Christ? How, how do I process that? Does Jesus really want me to hate? No. I, th- I think in this context, right, if we understand his meaning, is, is the word hate here means love less. That, that you have to put God first is what he's saying. Obviously, Jesus said in the Word of God to, to honor your father and mother, to, to love one another. He's not telling us to hate anything. What this means is Jesus is trying to use very strong language to communicate there's a high cost of discipleship. Look at your neighbor and say, Pastor lied. It's not free. It costs money. It costs your life, it costs, I'm going to tell you at the end what it costs. I'll give you the answer. What does it cost to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Jesus tells us. And the first thing he says is that you have to put God first in your life. Dave here and his family, they just left a, a good job and careers and a life in Texas to follow Jesus because he called them to come to Utah where they knew nobody and they had nothing, but they left everything to follow God. And that's what Jesus is talking about, that you put God first and Jesus above anything else, including your mother's brothers, sisters too. And if not, you cannot be. Now, this is strong language. You cannot be my disciple. And then he says, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what kind of king going to make war against another king does not sit down first 
and consider whether he is able to, with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the door is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. Here it is, verse 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. What is the cost of discipleship? What part of your life does it cost to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? All. Everybody say all. all. Cost all. And, and we can't have this compromise. Let's go to Revelation chapter 2. In verse number 13 he says, um, these, these things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell and where Satan's throne is. And, hold, and you hold fast to my name and you do not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, now Jesus mentions this in many of the churches, I know your works. Now, to this particular church, he doesn't really say much. But, but do you remember the, the Pharisees or those that came to Jesus and they asked him, what is it to do the works of God? And it's important to define this because so many people add on to, and I just told you it costs all to be a disciple of Christ. And that's where your works comes in, is in your discipleship. But it doesn't come in in your salvation. And, and, and we have to just understand works clearly. Works is a necessary part of Christian living. You're required to do works. God calls you and expects you to do works. You just have to understand that your works don't save you. They have nothing to do with your salvation. God gives us a great example in the Bible. A thief on the cross did no good works for Jesus. None. He died as, as a sinful sinner forgiven on his deathbed and he's going to heaven because it had nothing to do with works to get into heaven. But as a Christ follower, you should want to do those things. If you're in love with a woman, if you're in love with a man, you do things to show that you love them, you court them, you take them out, you do things. If you're in love with Jesus, you just do things because you want to do those things because you love him. But, but they're not required so that you can go to heaven. They asked Jesus, what is it to do the works of the Father? Man, Jesus had a wonderful opportunity to tell people to, to give to their churches and serve in their Sunday school and go on missions and go and leave their family and start churches. And he said some of that in, in another place. But here he says, the work of the Father, John chapter 6, is to believe on the one whom he sent. That's what he said. John chapter 6. Look it up if, if you need or write it down because we've got to keep moving. John chapter 6, verse 28, to do the works. And then Jesus said to this, to this, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and you do, did not deny my faith. Now, one thing I think it helps us to understand, maybe something practical that was happening in these churches that Jesus is talking to, is that um, in, in, in these places, in these ruins, in these cities where these churches were physically located, we, we found all kinds of archaeological discoveries. And one of the things that they know from history is that a lot of these civilizations, a lot of these places functioned, several of these cities, per Pergamos being one, Thyatira being another, where they operated under workers' guilds. So depending on what your trade was in these cities, you had to belong to the guild. It would be much like our unions today. The difference was the workers' guild, so if you were a, a stone worker or you were a woodworker or you were a leather worker or whatever your trade was, you would belong to the guild. But the guild was also attached to a religion and to a temple and to a style of worship. And, and not only did you sell yourself to this guild to, to be able to make a living, but you would also then have to join their temple. And there was these places were full of pagan worship and idolatry. And your guild would be connected to a certain idol and certain temple. And so this created a huge problem, right? For the Christians who, who, who were, had to be a part of these guilds to work, but wanted to separate themselves from the pagan practices that were involved. And so many of them had to hold fast to God's name, and Jesus commends them for it. He says, you did not deny my name. In Matthew, in chapter 10, in verse number 33... Jesus says, 32 and 33, Jesus says something that's a little bit scary. And uh, again, it's just an encouragement. I think as we get older, for me personally, it was something maybe when I was 14 I, I did struggle with. Um, as you guys know my testimony a little bit, that I, I had an experience in church in 7th and 8th grade. 
was really the only experience in church in my life before that. And then I stopped going to church after eighth grade, and I didn't get saved again, or saved really until I was 20. But one of the dilemma that I had in eighth grade going into ninth grade was that I, I was embarrassed to be out front and be outright that I was a believer and a Christian. And we need to be bold for Jesus. And I encourage our young people with this all the time because I know that it's an area where Satan is attacking them as they're going through high school and popularity contests and those things. And it's not always cool to be a Christian. And I encourage them. You know, I tell them, we, we, Lydia and I served in a Christian school, K-12 through school, uh, for 15 years. Long time. And um, one of the things, one of the dynamics, even in our Christian school, is you know, they, we, would, we would have young men and women who really were unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were on fire for Jesus. And then we had, a, you know, kids that their, their, their dads were the administrators and the pastors and the, you know, and, and they had this bone to pick and they wanted to prove to their peers that they weren't Miss Goody Two-Shoes. And so they had to go way off the deep end to prove to everybody that, you know, they could be bad too. And then they would, then they would you know, they would peer pressure the ones that were trying to walk with Christ to do what they were doing. And then they would graduate and years would go by. And, I, and I, I remember Tommy specifically. Tommy was our youth pastor here for about two years when we started this church. And he was a young man who I helped raise up. Joshua Springs through the high school and, and coaching and different things. And God brought him here just like Josh now who, who I was a part of raising him up. And then God has brought him full circle back to do ministry with me. And, and Tommy was one of these young men that was on fire for Jesus. And, he, and his peers told him later. You know, when you were in high school and we were trying to get you to do what we were doing and you were making a stand for Jesus, man, we just wanted to be like you. How did you do it? On the inside we were, on the outside we were, you know, pretending to want to be bad, but really what we wanted to do was have the strength that you had to follow Christ. And they appreciated and they envied and they encouraged him that, that, that they wanted to be like him. And I tell the young people that maybe right now they're, they're going to say things. They're going to tease you. They're going to be hard because you, you're making a stand for Jesus. But I guarantee you there'll come a day when you're going to be the one that they look up to. You're going to be the one that they come to and say, hey, will you help me? Will you, will you be a part of my life? Will you pray for me? I, I, I looked up to you in high school, and even though I didn't show it on the outside, you, you were the one. And, and so Jesus says this in Matthew. He says, as they went out, behold, they brought to him a mute man and the demon-possessed. That's chapter 9. Chapter 10. I knew it was 32 and 33. Chapter 10 says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, that's scary. That's almost as scary as my scariest verse in the Bible. When Jesus says to a group of people, depart from me, I never knew you. Scariest thing Jesus ever said and will ever say to anybody. But here he says the same thing. In essence, he says that if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. Paul understood this when he wrote the book of Romans. And in chapter one, he said, be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of salvation to those who believe. For, and he said, he declared of himself, for I am unashamed of the gospel. So we want to live our lives unashamed. And this church in Revelation did that. And Revelation 2 um, was another con, uh, um, positive thing that Jesus says to them. And then he says here twice, he says, where Satan's throne is. And then in the bottom he says, he says, Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, it says that Satan's throne was there. And that Satan dwells there. I have a picture, if we can bring it up, of Satan's throne. Because I think this idea is not completely crazy. Um, but have you guys seen that? that? That picture was taken, I think, either in Oklahoma or Washington. It was in three places I know. Oklahoma, Washington, and like Arkansas. And it was traveling and they brought it to the capital. And they have um, a temple. You see the two kids there. And that's a Baphomet or a, a picture of Satan. There's a satanic cross but that's here in the united states but this particular statue and this particular throne of satan um is is more common than uncommon they they're all over in different places to some version of this but this particular one was traveling um the country because they were going to be dedicating it in a temple to satan and they were going to they had an opportunity to bring it to the steps of the white house um and have a a rally there around it and um so when, when the Bible here says that, that they, 
there was a throne of Satan. Was it talking about a temple where Satan's throne dwelt, a literal temple? That's very possible. We know those existed in, 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 in these days and in these places. We know these places were full of temples. But, but more than that, it says, where, it says where, at the end of that verse, where Satan dwells. So where he physically dwells. Now, one of the things we understand about Satan is that Satan is not omnipresent like God. Satan can be in one place at one time. And, and I think that Satan has certain areas of the world that he's working in at times where it needs his presence and his, his deception to do what he's trying to do to form um, this, these armies of the Antichrist, one world government, one world economy, um, these things that he's trying to do. Um, obviously, his agenda over the years has been to kill the Jews, and he's failed at that, but attempted many times. He's continuing to attempt that. I don't know why he doesn't realize that it's not going to happen, but, you know, he, he, there's those today that, that Satan whispers in their ear, and they, they vow that their lives' work is to eradicate the Jew. Now, um, Satan has, I believe, at times, he has strongholds and places where he dwells. It says in Ephesians that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And so we have this verse in, in Ephesians 6 in this section about the armor of God. And then in there we have several different qualifiers of demonic activity and presence. But Satan has a whole host of demons. And he may not physically be able to be in all places at all times. But I think there's places where he, he does and where there's strongholds, where he frequents. Maybe one of those is Salt Lake City. Maybe one is in Iran. Maybe one is in Washington at times. Maybe one, you know, in, in, in Iraq or Saudi Arabia and in, in Mecca once a year. He goes and visits the homage and watches everybody worship him in, in the thing they do. The cabal or whatever that thing is. But he has, again, you know, strongholds of Satan where he's working. And that's what's happening here is that this is a stronghold of Satan. His throne is there. His presence is there. I mean, that says a lot. And God um, commends them for this, that they're um, standing strong. They're holding fast. One of them was martyred, that they, they're not denying his name. But now we get to the bad part of the report card in verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the, the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Do you guys um, know the story of Balaam? Really quickly, he says that they have their Balaam. Now, Jesus said to you and I, and, and, and know this, and you know, he said that, if you cause a little child to stumble, it would be better for you if what? A millstone were tied around your neck and you were thrown into the deepest sea. So if we cause a little one to sin or to stumble or teach them how to sin. I can remember being a teenager and teaching younger kids how to roll joints. And thinking, Jesus, forgive me. Don't put a millstone on my neck when I learned that later. But I was washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And my sins were cleansed. But, but, but Jesus says here, Balak, that this sin, it, it, and I can tell you the story really quick, and then you can understand maybe what was going on. But Balak, Balaam was a, a prophet of, of God, and he's kind of this anomaly type of prophet because he's known for, for giving curses and that God is using him to pronounce curses over people and, and when they sin and things that happen. And a pagan king who has a similar name, um, Balaam, Balak comes to Balak comes to Balaam and says, "I want you to pronounce a curse over God's people." And he says, "I'll pay you a handsome sum of money." And Balaam um, refuses to to curse the the people of Israel, and he and he keeps upping the ante. And finally, he comes with a dollar amount that Balaam can't refuse. And so because of money, he says, and then in Jude, which is one page back, he tells us that one of the sins of Balaam, the heir of Balaam, woe, woe to them, verse 11 of Jude, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the heir of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So um, part of the motivator for Balaam 
to sin was greed. And they kept offering him more money. And I'll make you a rich man. So Balaam says, okay, I'll do it. And, and, and he goes up and he gets on top of a mountain. Now it's fascinating because it's in the book of Numbers where we have this recorded. And Balaam is up on this high place and he's overlooking the entire camp of Israel. I got one more picture I want to show you. That's just kind of a little side note here. But um, as Balaam is there, he's cursing the people of, or trying to curse. Now this is what Balaam would have saw. This is the camp of Israel. And from Numbers, it's super fascinating because the Bible tells us exactly the way they were to camp. The little square in the middle, what would have been there? The tabernacle, right? The Ark of the Covenant, Holy of Holies. What tribe would have been in charge of that? The tribe of Levi was the, was the Levitical tribe, the tribe of Levi. And then God said he named the tribes and he said what the, how they should camp. To the north, the south, the east, the west of the tabernacle, everything was to be in a square. And when you do the numbers, that tells you how long each of those camps would have been. And so they camped in the perfect shape of a cross. And, and so Balaam, as he looks down, that's just a little side note, because as he goes up to curse the people, he would have had a bird's eye view of all of the camp of Israel. And he opens his mouth and he begins to curse the people of Israel and blessings come out. And then he says, no. And then, he, and then the, the king says, I, I paid you to curse them and you're blessing them. He says, I can only say what God gives me to say. So he ups the ante and he goes and he tries again. He opens his mouth and only blessings come out. Then the thing goes on a third time. And then Balaam comes to Balak and here's where it gets interesting. And he says, listen, I want that money. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to earn the money, but I'm not able to curse the people of Israel because every time I open my mouth, only blessing comes out. But here's how you get God to curse the people. He said, have the pagan women dress very scantily and go into the camp of Israel and entice the young men to come back to their camp with them, to lie with them. And then the pagans, the way that they um, have these, these sexual encounters is included in idol worship. And then get the children of Israel, the young men of Israel, to sleep with the women and worship their idols and their gods. And, and, and use this, this tool. And then God will have to curse them because of their sin. And he taught the pagan king how to curse God's people. And that's exactly what happened. He sent the young women through the camp. They enticed the men of Israel. And they began to sin. And God had to judge the people. You know, the same thing was, you know, you think of um, um, Samson and Delilah. And, and, and how, you know, the same idea that God had to deal with him. As as the they, he she cut her hair cut his hair and she enticed him and so that was the doctrine of Balaam and and then he says he taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel and to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality and then in verse fifteen it says thus you shall have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans which things I hate so we're, we'll try to move quickly through this because we already dealt with the de with the um, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now understand, there's, um, even in Balaam, you can look up the word Balaam in the New Testament, and you'll find like the doctrine of Balaam, the error of Balaam, um, the deeds of Balaam, Nicolaitans, the same thing. So we have kind of these different qualifiers that God's word uses to identify what was going on. In the last um, church, when they mentioned the, the Nicolaitans, it was the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Here we have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And if you don't remember, just quick, Reminder, Nicolaitans, just like Pergamos is per and gamos, objectionable marriage. Nicolaitans is another word that works the same way. The first part of that Greek word is Nike, which means victory. And the second part is laity or, or the people of God or the laity. And so victory over the people. And it was a lordship of leadership in the churches over the people of God. And we've told you already that the church is not to have lordship over any of you, over anyone. Right? That, that Jesus is your Lord. That you don't need, and what the church has done, and one of the mistakes the church has made over the years, is they've realized that, that there's power in, in you needing me to get to God. And all kinds of doors of evil can be opened. If you need me to get to God, then I can charge you money. Then I can control you. Then I can, I can do all these things. I can make you give your lands, your stuff. And, and so this was the, the, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was lordship over the people, victory over the people. And then he says, which things I, everybody, 
Does Jesus hate? Huh? You guys are confused. I see it around the room. Some of you are like, yeah, it says it right there. Other you guys are like, no, Jesus don't hate. God is a God of love. Let me tell you something about Jesus, y'all. The Bible's pretty clear. He hates. He has no problem hating. It says right here, things I hate. I told you before when he says you have to hate your parents that I dumbed it down a little bit for you and I said love less. This is not love less. This is hate. Now, God is a God. Listen, it's not foreign to think that God is a God of love who has the ability to wrath or hate things that are going to hurt his people, that are going to hurt his children. I was having this conversation with a young man and my favorite, one of my favorite conversations and just witnessing out to random people. I'm having a conversation, and I worked with this guy, so it was over a period of time. And his big deal was that God, any God that would throw people into hell, he didn't want anything to do with this God. That he, and then he would say of himself, I'm just about love. I'm about kindness. What, what's mine is yours, and you know, if it's free to me, it's free to you. He'd say things like this, and he would um, say that I'm about love, and I just have nothing, want nothing to do with your God who will throw people into hell and and just and this thing of, of wrath and all this. And he just had a little baby girl, brand new baby baby girl. So I had asked him, I said, hey, let me ask a question. You, you, you're a guy of love, right? And he says, yes. You know, he reminds me how loving he is and his life is about love. And I said, what would you do if somebody broke in your room and, and was raping your daughter? And he didn't, like, I don't know if he saw I was setting him up or what, but he got like really, like, Really like big face and he just reacted. Like the words just came out of his mouth before he even thought about it. And he's like, I would shoot him in the face. And I'm like, exactly. Of course you would. That would be the right thing to do. But you can be a person who has the ability to wrath against injustice and, and, and be loving. And you understand that, no problem. But you don't understand that God is a God of love who has the ability to wrath against injustice and things that he hates. Right? It's not, it's, not, it's not a contradiction. It's very easy to understand. It's very common. We're all the same way. We, we all fancy ourselves as good people or loving people. But, but in the face of evil, we, we would, our actions, we would do things that would just be justified, right? And I, I guarantee you, you know, you can do lots of things to me. And I, and I have kind of a pretty easy and, and, and you know, I... I I'm pretty tolerant. But if you try to hurt my wife, it brings out some ugly in me that, that, that just doesn't exist. If you can do anything you want to me, or you know, and I can probably handle it. I'd probably stay cool even. I mean, one time, this, this guy, we were in a mall and shopping for shoes, and some guy said something really rude to Lydia in like a footlocker or something. And Like, I'm a pastor already, and Lydia and I shopping, and like, I'm trying to fight this guy in footlocker. Like, hold me back. Like, I'm yelling across the store at him. And another time, a guy asked her for a kiss. It took me a while to find that guy. I, I seriously, I had to go because we were in the, in the gym at the church, and it was a harvest festival going on, and a bunch of people there. And I had to go through the sanctuary and into the parking lot, and I chased this guy down. And I said, you want to kiss somebody? Kiss me! <laughs> But I was legitimately um, angry and not caring about my Christianity at the moment. I just wanted to wrath. And, and, and again, God has the ability and God is going to wrath. God is going to wrath in the book of Revelation. But I, I don't want anybody to give you a guilt trip or use that against you. Oh, God throws people in hell. He's a tyrant God. He killed the Canaanites in the Old Testament. And he's an unjust and immoral God. And you know, all this nonsense that's, that's circular reasoning that, you know, you, you, at the same people who say God is immoral because he killed the Canaanites and he does these things are the same exact people that say, why doesn't God stop the evil today? Why doesn't God intervene in the evils that are taking place? Well, you can't have it both ways, guy. He did intervene and he killed the Canaanites because they were a cancerous society that were, that were doing evil and he wiped them out. And he's immoral because he does that, but he's immoral because he, he doesn't stop injustice and he, does, and he allows things to happen. And he allows the free will of man. But really, if God was going to stop every injustice in this world because he's a good God, what about when, you know, 
I, I go to the donut shop and I get me a chocolate double chunk donut. And I'm already 30 pounds overweight. As I'm putting that donut to my mouth, should God knock it out of my hands? Hey, injustice. I'm a justice warrior. Like where, where do you draw the line in the free will of man? That God has given us love and God has given us a choice. And, and yes, he did. He, he, he intervened in the Old Testament and he wiped out a society that was that where children were going to be born and continue to go to hell because this society was only wicked continually. But, but again, God is a God that he's, you know, we're about to read, we're about to see the wrath of God in a couple of weeks as we get to chapter six, when God's wrath is being poured out on a Christ rejecting world. And God's wrath is fierce, but it has nothing to do with his ability to love. Amen. And then he says, in verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them. Anybody want to be on the, the side of things that God hates? Anybody want to have a fist fight with God? Okay, then we want to stay away from these things. And the, and the um, advice is to repent. By the way, what does the word repent mean? Turn away 180 degrees and go the other way. And then he says, um, with the sword of my mouth. And every time you see that sword that Jesus wields here, the, the Greek word is a Thracian sword, which is a heavy, like big sword. These swords were infamous for their power that would hit a man on top of his head and the sword wouldn't stop until it got to his groin. And then the Romans had a sword. There was a different sword. You'll see used, that word used sometimes. That Roman sword was the smaller dagger sword. This sword that, that's out of Jesus' mouth and the word that's used um, is Thracian sword, which was a big, heavy, sharp sword that... Um, we're pretty infamous in battle throughout history. And then he says in verse 17, he who has an ear, how many of you guys have an ear? How many of you guys have two? Okay, so these letters are written to seven churches, but they're also written in 2021 for, for us today, right? And that's the way the Word of God works from Genesis to Revelation. They're written for a people, for a group at the time, and they're written for us, and God has quickened them by the Holy Spirit, and they're, they're relevant to us today. And so he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. I, I encourage you as we go through these letters to um, find personal application and see what God is speaking to you about. We just dealt with the church of compromise. Is there compromise in your life? Is there compromise in your, in your Christian walk? Are, are you doing things that, that, that are just fire insurance? Is, is, is church one, one day a week, is that, is that the extent of your Christianity? We dealt with that last week. That's not, that's not the way we walk with God. It's something we do all day, every day. You don't eat one meal a week. And then he says, verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, he says this to all seven churches, that we should be overcomers. I will give, you, I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, to which no one knows except him who receives it. So we believe that that's relevant for all of us, that God, and we see this in the Bible, it says that in um, Revelation 21 and 22, we're going to get another mention of it, that, that you are going to get a new name. How many of you guys don't like your name? A couple of you. My little sister was Angela. Angela Nicole Begno. And I don't know, at a young age, she decided she didn't like Angela, so she changed her to went by her middle name her whole life. To this day, we've only called her Nikki or Nicole because she didn't like Angela. So if you don't like your name or your last name, maybe your name is Julia and you're dating a guy named Gulia. And if you get married, you'll be Julia Gulia. And don't worry, you're going to get to change that because God. You know what's fun, what's what's cool about this is that that, that every name there are going to be like a hundred Chris's in heaven. I'm going to have one name that's unique to me that describes who I am and my personality, and it's going to be uh, uh, intimate with, between God and I as he gives me this name. And again, I've seen some of the, the cults, they, they pervert this idea and do weird stuff with it. But this, what the Bible says is that when you get to heaven, that, that, that you will be go, go by a different name for all of eternity. And, you know, I, I know what my name is already. God kind of told me based on my personality and who I am, it's schmuck. So that's how you'll find me in heaven, but... All right, hey, let's finish this last church. We've just got a few minutes left, but let's finish the church of Thyatira. So it says, And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God. Highlight Son of God there because it's the only time in the book of Revelation in these seven letters 
that Jesus uses this as a self-description of himself, and maybe because he wanted to say, I'm not the son of Mary, I'm the son of God. Um, This is the church that represents the Holy Roman Catholic Church during this, this phase of history. And really, as you guys know, the Holy Roman Catholic Church dominated um, the church scene for a thousand years. And, and, and at one time, and, and probably to this day, I imagine their holdings are still somewhere in there. But if the, if the, the Catholic Church would have been the wealthiest entity on planet Earth for seven, eight hundred years. And even recently, the Catholic Church, if it was um, the, from the Vatican standpoint, if it was a country, it would be the third wealthiest country on planet Earth. Because through the years of, of from 500 to 1500, so many of the practices, and again, the Catholic Church was all over the entire Europe, over the entire, and so through all of Europe and, and, and much of the known world, it was dominant. And they, and they were, they would, the people would give lands and properties and the, all the fine arts of the world and all the Picassos and Rembrandt finest, most expensive art pieces of the world were owned by the Catholic Church. The, the, the Vatican and the, the places. And during this season, many things were introduced into Christianity that are just extra biblical. And that's just history. Again, I'm not bagging on anybody. I'm telling you what the truth is. And what they did was they started things like purgatory. You don't find that in the Bible. The worship of Mary, that, that's not in the Bible. The um, confessing your sins to a priest, that's not, in the, that's not in the New Testament. Jesus said the veil of the temple was rent from the top of the, to the bottom and we're all invited into the Holy of Holies. In the Old Testament, you did have a priest that stood between you and the Holy of Holies. But when Jesus died on a cross, we were all invited in. And the New Testament says that you should confess your sins to God, not to a man. But again, in confessional, what happened, and really the honest, the, the honest truth about it is, is that the, the church then would know everybody's what? Secrets. Everybody sins. They could control. They could have power through these things. They came up with a, with a doctrine during these years called the doctrine of um, what? Penance. Yeah, but that's not the word I was looking for. I have it written down. I was looking, what is it? Indulgences. That's the word I was looking for. Kind of same idea. Indulgences. So basically the way indulgences worked is that if you were going to Vegas this weekend and you knew you were going to party it up and you just wanted to go guilt-free, you just stop by the church, you write us a check, and depending on how big your check is, you can, you can then prepay for your sins. Go to Vegas guilt-free and indulgences, buying indulgences is a practice, a common practice in the Holy Roman Catholic Church. Um, That's it on the stuff that I have written down. And then it says in verse 19. Oh, wait, wait, verse verse 18. Let's finish it. These things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass. Now, both of these things, fire and brass in the Bible, are symbols of judgment. Feet of brass is definitely a sign of judgment. And so, um, oh, I know the other thing that happened within within this period of human history. The, the Bible was not circulated among the common people. And the common practice of the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, was that, that only the priests would have the Bible. It was only in Latin, and they could only understand it and, and dictate it to the people. The common people didn't speak or read Latin, and the, and the Bibles were only translated in Latin. Do you remember when, when Bibles began to become more readily available to common people? It started with Wycliffe. You guys heard the name Wycliffe, the same guy, Jeremy, who we supporting as one of our missionaries, Wycliffe Bible. To this day, it goes on. Wycliffe died in like 1386, and, and he was the one that began mass producing Bibles, and he was from France. He was a priest from France, a part of the Catholic Church, um, and all these guys, but, but really kind of the beginning stage of the Reformation. And then what we're going to see in the next church is the Reformation period came in, and the way the Reformation took its, its roots was, was these priests and these men, John Calvin, uh, Martin Luther, they began to read the Bible for themselves and they began to find things in the Bible that were inconsistent with what the church's stance was on doctrinal issues. And then the 92 Thesis, German um, priest on the door of, 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 the, of the church there that he posted the 92 thesis of 92 things from reading the Bible that the church doctrinally was, was doing backwards and wrong. And, and out of that, now the reformers came and they, they left some of those things of Catholicism that were not in the Bible, but they didn't really come far enough. 
You know, they, they still they still were kind of married because again, that's that's a that's a that's a shoes we've never walked in. It would be like the Jews who who followed Jesus according to the law, and then he died on a cross in the middle of their life, and then the last half of their life they walked with Jesus according to grace. Um, it would have been a transition. Well, these guys would have been transitioning too. So they, they gave us the, the birth of the Reformation, but many of them became anti-Semitic in their doctrine and they didn't understand the place of the Jew. And at the time there was no Israel and no Jerusalem and they didn't have the luxury that we have today of even seeing the Jew in their homeland. And then it says, um, I know your works of love, service, faith, patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So Jesus commends them. The, the, the Catholic Church is so well-known over all of history for their good works, right? How many Catholic hospitals and schools and orphanages and rehab centers and, I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on of the good works that, that they've done. All over. That, that's, that's, Jesus commends them for those things. Mother Teresa was a saint and amazing in what she did in her ministry and in her life and her ministry in India. And God used her and she knew Jesus and she was amazing in many, many through the years of the Catholic Church. And he's going to talk about at the end of this letter that, that he says for those that are just apart but weren't a part of these deceiving issues that he separates them. Because in any kind of religion, there, there's a line where within the Roman Catholic Church with some of these things with these corrupt priests that were buying the um, another thing that was going on, they were the Pope was they were bidding on who would be the next pope and whoever could pay the most would become the next pope. But the people that would just come there to serve God, God Jesus is going to separate them at the end of this letter and say that you, you came innocently, you followed God according to what the church taught you, but then as you go up the ranks of the church, you get to the point where now you're no longer the deceived and at the top of the church you are the deceivers. And we find that. We find that, that at the top they know that these things are deception and they're deceiving. But the average person may, may not be guilty of that deception because they don't understand that. They're just coming with a sincere heart to serve and love God. And so th- there does make a distinction between the deceived and the deceivers. And then he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel. Everybody say Jezebel. How many of you guys want to name your daughters Jezebel? I don't think I've ever met one. Good thing because I probably wouldn't be too nice to her. I'd be afraid of her. Jezebel is the wickedest woman in all the Bible. If you don't know who Jezebel is, she was a pagan um, priest who, who somehow married a king of Israel called Ahab. And she brought paganism in the days of, of Elijah and Elijah through, recorded there through the book of uh, 1 Samuel, Kings. And, and, and this woman was a wicked woman. Elijah had the, the, the duel with her on Mount Carmel and 450 prophets of Baal versus God and this duel down. And Jezebel was just a wicked woman. There was a prophecy of her that she would be eaten by dogs is how God was going to deal with her. And sure enough, by the end, she was pushed out a window. She landed on the concrete. She went splat and the dogs came and ate her. So don't name your daughters Jezebel. So this is the spirit of Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce. Now, because she called herself a prophetess, does that make her a prophetess? I'm a bodybuilder. I build my body with donuts. Just because I say something doesn't mean that I am. Just because somebody claims to be a prophet or claims to be a teacher of the Bible, including myself, including our church, you are wise to test these things to see if they're true. You are wise to be a Berean and go to the Word of God for yourself and see what I'm telling you is true. See what the people that are telling you are true. Sometimes I will call out false doctrine on and usually it's these guys that are on TV. And sometimes people say, well, why are you talking bad about them? I'm not talking bad about them. I don't know them. But I'm telling you what they're teaching is not in the Bible. It's whack. But test these things. That's, that's what your responsibility is as a Christ follower, is to know for yourself, test what things are being told to you, and, and be a student of the Word for yourself. You know, don't, don't leave your Christianity to, to hoping that you got into a good church, like this one, where... Um, where the Bible is being taught, you know, not perfectly. I don't claim to teach the Bible perfectly. I claim to teach the Bible honestly, the way I know it, Genesis to Revelation. But, um, you know, don't, don't just leave it up to chance that you landed in a good church and you're being taught something good. Make sure that you study, you test those things, you, you read the Word of God for yourself. You have personal relationship with Jesus. Because it's not just about study. It's about study, 
as you, as you commune with Jesus. Amen? Okay, we're almost done, you guys. Just give me two more minutes. It says, um, Jezebel, let's go to verse 21. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. Now, understand this, that um, in the Bible, adultery is mentioned here as it can be physical adultery. It can also be spiritual adultery because God views it the same. He even has an entire prophet who has to live his life with an adulterous wife in the Old Testament to show the the nation of Israel a, a picture, a word lesson, a life lesson that they were whoring after other gods. And so adultery can be where if you have other gods before God, it's seen in the Bible as spiritual adultery, where you're cheating on God with, with an idol. And so that's what's happening um, here. I believe physical adultery as well is being mentioned. And then he says, um, unless they repent of their deeds. Now, to this church, the word repent is used more than any other letter in, in, to, to this, this corrupt church. And, and, and so they are called to repent. Multiple times it says here, repent, repent, repent. And normally in all the other letters, he just says it at the end that you need to repent. And he says to repent of their deeds or I will kill her children with death. (laughs) Is that from the school of redundancy or what? How else do you kill children? (laughs) You don't kill them with life. I guess sometimes we say we kill them with kindness. But yeah, if they're killed, they're killed with death. I will kill her with her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one according to your works. So God is going to give to each one according to the works. That's a biblical principle, the Bema Seat of Christ. Now to you I say and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine and who do not know the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. So I already talked about that. These are the people that are a part of these churches who are innocent. And he says, to you, I will put on you no other burden. You don't, you, you don't know the depths of Satan. But really what's happening above you, to some degree, is demonic. It's satanic. And it's, it's about power and greed. And, and he says, but you keep what you know, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And he shall rule over them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel as I also have received from my Father, and I will give the morning star. Hey, hey, Brian, come on up, you guys. Let's, let's go ahead and close in the song. I will give him the morning star, and he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the churches say. So again, oh, I guess we get that next week. I blot it out. The other thing that they have in, in the a developed doctrine as the worship team is kind of, you guys say close your Bibles. Um, I know we jammed through that, that last part there, but um, they, they have the doctrine of excathrida. And, and you see this in, in many of the major religions of the world too, where they have some form of this. But again, it's not biblical. And, and, and again, we're, we're not pointing a finger at any individuals or any people that, you know, claim to be you know, one thing or another. I do remember kind of some of the confusion as a young, young person that I had. And we had a group of friends and we, we did our thing and we, but on, on this one Wednesday a year, some of my friends would show up to the party really late that night and we would drink and do our thing every night. And then, and then they were there every, every day we were doing our thing, except for this Wednesday, they would show up late and they'd have this ash on their foreheads. And they would try to explain to me where they had been and why they were late to the party. And then they would drink and they would do everything we did the night before and nothing would change, but they went to their church and they got some ash. And I remember being a young guy and being like, it's a little confusing. Like, because they were trying to explain to me, it's about, I don't even remember, but it's about, you know, going to church, getting right with God and forgiveness of sins. And, you know, you wear ash and sackcloth and repentance. And, and I'm like, you were here drinking with me last night doing the same thing I'm doing. And now you're here tonight after you, after you just left church doing the same thing you're doing. So I don't think that church thing is working, dude. Like you, you ain't changing. But they have this doctrine there to this day that the Pope speaks ex cathedra. And what that means is that when, when the Pope sits in a certain seat in the Vatican in St. Petersburg, 
that when God brings revelation to him and he speaks to the, the Roman Catholic Church, that his voice and his word, it supersedes any written word or any previous prophecy or any previous word that was given, that it is as if the voice of God. And, and so, you know, we have that, like I said, that's not the only denomination who claims that they have this position where their leader speaks as if the voice of God um, others claim the same thing. Now, we don't have that. We don't claim anybody speaks as if the voice of God, that nothing supersedes the written word of God. Amen? All right, let's stand.